Yes, a good morning. And uh, am I switched on on some? Yes, okay. And uh, yeah, good morning and a happy new year to anyone that I haven't already said that to. Or, uh, and, uh, you do pray, don't you, that it will be a. We want it to be a happy new year, but we want to be a year where we find, in a sense, true, ha <coughs> true happiness. True happiness comes from the blessing of God in our lives, doesn't it? As we seek to, to know Him and to live for Him to know more of his purposes for us. I, uh, it's about five years ago, I can remember I was um, sitting in the church that we belonged to, the church that I worked for, and um, I was sitting uh, right in the front row, as I was this morning, and we had a visiting speaker uh, who um, didn't really know the church, um, but... Uh, he started off by saying, he asked a question, and he asked us to respond to this question. I'm not going to ask you to respond, so don't worry about it. But he said, he said, I want to know if you love the church. Do you love the church? And when that, he, he's not talking about the building, not talking about services, he's talking about the real church, i.e. the people of the church. Do you love the church? Quite a question, isn't it? He said, I want you to put your hand up if you love the church. Now, bear in mind, I'm sitting on the front row, and I work for the church. And he says, put your hand up if you love the church. And then he said, but I don't want you to lie. <laughs> now, I'm really in trouble now, because you know, I, I was going to put my hand up, and then I'm thinking, but actually at that time, things weren't particularly easy within the church. Things weren't going quite as I would... I and the other leadership would have liked it to go. There's some difficulties. Uh, if I was absolutely honest, do I love this people? Do I love these people? Well, I was struggling, and uh, I probably did put my hand up at the end, you know, because theoretically I did love the church, even if I didn't feel it at that particular particular moment. But it's an interesting question, isn't it? Do you love the church? Why should we love the church? Should we love the church? Well, I'm sure one or two verses are coming to mind as we ask that, that question. In the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at, at our values as a church, those things that you see printed on the bottom of your news sheet each week, things that we say are important about the way that we do church, the way that we work church at, and uh, that's what we're going to be thinking about. And in a sense, they're calling for some sort of response in the way that we live and the way that we the way that we do things. But the reality is, we don't want to be doing those things just out of some sort of sense of duty, or because we're told that we should do those things, that we should love other people, or that we should serve others, or serve, serve Christ in, in various ways. We need to understand, we need to have the right motivations for doing those things, and living that way. And a big part of that is that we love the church, is that we love God's people. And here in Philippians chapter 1, we're going to be basing those around Philippians, but right at the beginning of Philippians, you see that Paul loves these people. He loves these people he's writing to. Now remember, Paul had been at Philippi, maybe, we don't know exactly, but he'd started the church in Philippi, which is in, in Greece, 
about 10 years probably before he wrote this letter. And he's writing this letter, we know from what he says later on, he's writing this letter when he's in prison. And we think he's in prison in Rome. So he's writing to a group of people, a few of whom he would have known and met and led to the Lord 10 years ago, but also a group of, I'm sure, many people that he did not know personally. And yet when he writes this letter, you can see it right the way through the beginning to the end, he writes, and you can see his affection, his love, his concern for these people at Philippi. Why is that? How does he, how does he have that deep concern and compassion for them? Why, why is that? I'm just going to pick on uh, three things that he says in these first few verses that in a sense help us to understand why he is like this. And also, in turn, how we can be like that too. So right at the beginning, he starts off, doesn't he? Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. To all the saints in Christ Jesus. Now when he says that, all the saints in Christ Jesus, is that just a, a normal greeting? Is that sort of, uh, you know, is that sort of him being flattering, you know? Ooh. To all you wonderful people at Philippi, is he, you know, or is he using some sort of spiritual language, you know, to the, to the beloved of the Lord at Philippi? Or is it more than that? I think it's much more than that. Here he is saying to all these people, some of whom he doesn't know, to the whole church, he calls them saints in Christ, saints of Christ, saints in Christ Jesus. He's not saying, necessarily, that they are saintly people in the normal worldly way of thinking about it. He's not saying, you at Philippi are, are all such wonderful Christians. Right? I don't think he's saying that. He's saying that they are saints in Christ Jesus. It's because they are in Christ Jesus that they are saints. It's not because that they are necessarily living although I hope they are, and I'm sure he hopes they are, and he prays that they are. It's not necessarily that they are living saintly lives, that everything is also wonderful. This is their identity, that they are saints in Christ Jesus. And being in Christ has made them saints. It's not something they've learned, it's not something they've achieved. It's because they are in Christ Jesus that they are saints. A few weeks back, um, we were doing uh, Activate, and we've been talking about us with the, the children, primary school age, and we've been talking about David, that night, we've been talking about David's sins. We're talking about the life of David, very briefly, you know, David and Goliath, and whatever else. And then we came to David's Unfortunately for my week, it became David and Bathsheba. I didn't choose that. <laughs> Not the sort of thing I'd have probably done with the, with the little ones. But anyway, we didn't go into great details. Well, I think they understood a lot more than probably uh, I thought they might have done. But that, so we were talking about David's sins, David's problems. You know, his adultery, his lying, his effectively murder of uh, Uriah, and we were writing some of these things, his arrogance, we were writing some of these things down on that whiteboard there, right? And then, as I prepared, just before coming out, I had a, a thought, I thought, you know, let's, 
wipe the whiteboard. Let's wipe off these sins. Let's wipe them off. Because David, later on, doesn't he? David is told that he's, he's been made clean. He's been cleansed by God. And so we wipe them off. And I said to the kids, I said, so, okay, so where, where has the sins, where have those sins gone? They've disappeared off the whiteboard, but where, where have they gone? And of course, they're all clever kids, and they say, well, where's the ink gone? Well, the ink had gone on the white cloth that I'd used to wipe them off. And we talked about how when we're forgiven in Christ, our sins are wiped away. But in Christ isn't just having your sins wiped away. Forgiven. Wonderful and marvellous that is that is. When we're in Christ, the Bible tells us that not just of our sin being taken by him, but that his righteousness, his perfection, his purity, his wholeness, his absolute goodness is given to us. And that's how God the Father sees those of us who are in Christ Jesus. He doesn't just see us forgiven. He sees us made righteous through Jesus Christ. That verse in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you understand that? That if you're in Christ Jesus, you are righteous. You are made right. You are made, you're, you're made pure and perfect. That's how God the Father sees us when we are in Christ Jesus. These people are saints in Christ Jesus. Why did God do that? Why does he do that? Why should he want to make me not just forgiven of my sin, but pure and perfect in his sight? Well, in one sense it's a mystery. But if we're going to try and answer it at all, it's simply this. It's because God loves us. It's out of who he is. It's not out of who I am or who you are. It's not out of what you've done or where you've come from or anything like that. It's simply because in his love, he chooses to do that for us. Our identity is changed. It's as if we've got a new passport. That's why Paul gets so worked up later on in Philippians when he sees people that are trying to earn their salvation by what they do. That gets him really annoyed in chapter 3. Gets annoyed because actually he's got lots of reasons to boast from a human perspective. Lots of reasons to boast about who he was and what he'd achieved. And he said, you know what? That's all rubbish. That's rubbish compared to what I've now received in Christ Jesus. Compared to, the, to, to that, um, well, we'll just turn to it. Chapter 3, verse 7. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything the loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. And he uses a very strong word for rubbish. We're a bit more respectful here. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. 
the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. These people are saints in Christ Jesus. And the truth is that in Christ we have a new identity. Often we look at ourselves, I do. Often we look at ourselves and we see, see things there and we sometimes think nothing has changed. I still seem to be that same old person. I still have the same old problems. I still have those same habits. I still whatever else. But in Christ, the Bible teaches that we are made right with him. And that's how God the Father sees us. That is our identity. That is the truth. We may listen to the lies that the devil whispers to us. But the truth is that if we are in Christ, we are made righteous. And that's how he sees me and how he sees each of us this morning. If we put our faith and trust in him and what he has done for us. It was earlier this year, wasn't it, that um, Justin Welby found out, the Archbishop of Canterbury found out. No, oh, last year now. Glad <laughs> <laughs> to see somebody's away. Right. April, I think it was. When he found out that his dad was not his dad. Pretty important thing for anyone, let alone the Archbishop of Canterbury. You know what he said at the time? You may recall what he said. He said this. Because obviously it was a serious issue. He said at the end of, when he talked about it and how he dealt with it, he said this. My identity is found in who I am in Christ. That's who I am. In one sense, it doesn't matter who my father was or where I come from. My identity, who I am at the core of my being, is found in who I am in Christ. And that doesn't change if we mess up. Always remember, I may have used this illustration before, but it's because it's it stuck with me, um, literally. Years ago, um, uh, Joseph was uh, at all this, was probably, I don't know, three, something like that. And he's, he's one of those, like me, he's, he's, he's hardly ever sick, and he's hardly ever been sick as a child. Um, um, it just didn't happen. But one day he was sick, and he threw up. Uh, actually, we had this at our Christmas meal this year with our granddaughter throwing up just as we were about to start our Christmas meal everywhere, projectile vomiting, but that's another story, but for another illustration. But, but this time, the Joseph was, was, was sick and he thrown up, and of course, he's got all sick all down his front. And my wife says, You have him while I go and clean up the floor. And she passes me this sick child that's covered in vomit all down his front. And he's crying. He's crying because he didn't like being sick and he probably didn't know what was happening and whatever else. And she passes me this sick child. And I have to cuddle this sick child who's sick all down his throat because he needs to be cuddled and loved. And that's how it is with us and God. He loves us. He loves us and he loves us. He doesn't like our sickness in one sense any more than I like the sickness down Joe's front. And the sickness does have to be dealt with. The sick does have to be cleaned up. And it will be cleaned up. 
but that does not change how he thinks about us and what he and how he loves us. His love for us is far stronger than my love ever would be for my child. His love is perfect. And he loves us even when we mess up. And here's another illustration that's even more perfect. And I have used this one here before. When I, as you know, we've got adopted children in our, in, in, in my wider family, there are several adopted people. And, uh, and uh, I always remember um, my brother saying to me, one of my adopted brothers saying, um, when he was behaving particularly badly, and he did behave very badly for quite a long time, um, when he behaved particularly badly and, and he was going to get punished for it, he said to me, what I remember is this, that when that happened, that was when I was about nine years old, and our dad, it was our dad, our dad said to me this, or said, said to him this, he said, listen, you behave badly and you're going to be punished. But you just need to understand this. However badly you behave, you're not going back. Because you've been sent back before. You are our adopted son. You are our son and you will stay with us. You will live with us. You're one of us. You're one of the family. You're not going back. And my brother said to me that at that age, that saying that to him was a defining moment in his life when he realised now, no matter how badly he behaved, he was still a son. He was still loved and part of the family. And that's how we are. There are consequences for our bad behaviour, but that these things do not change that God loves us. And that we're made righteous, made right in Him. And knowing this, knowing that we're loved, change, knowing that He was loved, began to change His life. Knowing that we are true, if we know that we are truly loved, it begins to change the way we, the way we think and the way we act. And one of those ways it begins to change us is that we begin to love the church because it is the church of Jesus Christ. It's his family. It's the family that we're part of. Just, you know, when Jesus, right at the end, uh, in the end of John's Gospel, after Peter has messed up, he calls Peter back to himself, effectively, and he says three times, and he says to Peter, three times, do you love me? Yeah, and each time Peter says yes. And each time, Jesus says to him, now, okay, so he didn't say this, but effectively, okay, so you love me. Now, Peter, look after my church. Love my church. Feed my church. If you love me, do this for me. And that's what we're called to do. As we recognise how much God loves us, we're called to love the church that we've been brought into. So Paul loved his church. There were saints in Christ. I'm just going to mention two other things quickly because time has gone. But there are saints in Christ Jesus in verse 1. But also in verse 5 we read that they were partners in the gospel. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. From the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry on to completion until the day 
of Christ Jesus. He loved the church because he saw God at work in this church. He saw God at work. He knew of God at work in these people's lives, changing them. But he saw God's grace being worked out, and that caused the response of love and affection towards them. A few weeks back, I was preaching at a church uh, in uh, another part of the country to do with, with partnership, and um, and I was talking. With, I used a, a message about how about how it's God's grace that we receive. But it's God. It's God's grace that works out in our lives. Right. So we receive God's grace, but it doesn't just sit here. Grace is recycled. Grace is worked out. And in fact, if it's not worked out, we have to question whether we've ever received God's grace. Because it should be, it should be working out, despite our weaknesses and failures and all those things. At the end of the service, the lady in front of me, obviously a lady of, uh, in her 50s, I'd say, of very humble uh, circumstances, say no more, turned around to me and preached and she said she said it's true she says true what you said this morning she said it's true that as we receive God's grace then we when we give it to others and she said that she said you can tell this tell people about us if you want to but they don't know me she said um, I, I'm she said I was abused badly as a, a young girl by a family member she said, as I came to know Christ, as I, can't remember exact words, but as I became, when I became a Christian, I knew that I had to, I knew that I had to, things had to be different. And part of that, I knew that I had to forgive this relative who'd abused me so badly when I was small. And she said, and, and so I went and told him, I forgave him. He didn't show any remorse for what he'd done. And she said, I told him, I forgave him, I had forgiven him. And this is the key thing that I remember. Then she said, and when I went to his funeral, when I went to his funeral, and the coffin was there, I went to the coffin, and I put my hands on the coffin, and I prayed that God would forgive him for what he'd done to me. And I thought, lady, you've got it. You've got it. God's grace has worked in your life to the extent that you can do something that many of us would find impossible, perhaps. You've got it. God's grace is working in you. Do you know what? He's going to finish that work that he started in you. And one day everyone's going to see what God has done in your life. And we've worked in you. And that's what Paul could see in these people. He could see that they were partners in the gospel. He could see that these things being worked out in their lives. And that encourages us, doesn't it? I was encouraged by this woman, not by in a sense by the terrible story, but just encouraged by what I saw in that just few minutes of Christ working in her. Are we encouraging each other by what we see in work acts? Are you encouraging me? As I look at you, do you encourage me? Well, there are people here who do encourage me, and I am really encouraged. 
you want to be one of those? Am I encouraging you by what you see of Christ in my life? That's what we want it to be, isn't it? And last of all, so there were saints in Christ Jesus, they were partners in the gospel. And in 1 verse 7, we also read that they share in the grace, in God's grace. He said, all of you share in God's grace with me. How I, and how I long for all of you with the, test, with the affection of Christ Jesus. God, why is this? How can you long for them with the affection of Christ Jesus? Well, God's at work in Paul's life, as we know. And in a sense, I, I, I guess he's becoming more like Christ throughout his life. But also, because, because these people in Philippi, he's in, he's in Rome in prison today, they're in Philippi in Greece. He's only been there ten years ago. I don't know how long he stayed. But because for over those ten years, these people in Philippi have shared God's grace with him. We can read in chapter, I haven't got time, but we can read in chapter 4, verses 10 to 19, how that they have been generous with him. It says, you sent me help, you sent me aid, again and again. These people gave to him, to support him, to minister to his needs. And then more recently, they've sent Epaphroditus, to read about this in 2.25, they've sent Epaphroditus with a gift to minister to his needs while he's in prison in Rome. In fact, it's Epaphroditus that's carrying and carrying this letter back to the church in Philippi. They've been channels of grace to Paul. And that had produced, that had, that had encouraged his response of love and affection towards them. So we're saints, they were saints. In Christ Jesus, partners in the gospel, they were sharers in God's grace, and that is true for us. And then he then so then he concludes this passage by this prayer, and this is my prayer that the love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ the glory and praise of God. He wants them to be a loving church. Now, that may, that may certainly include hugs and signs of physical affection. In fact, if it doesn't show, if there's no real uh, expressed affection amongst us, then we'd have to question whether we do love one another. There's times, I'm sure, when my, life, my wife loves me out of duty, right? She loves me despite the person I am, and she puts up with me and all the rest of it. But if that's all she ever did, if it was only ever out of duty, it wouldn't really be the sort of love that I want. Love has to be expressed, and it's expressed with affections and emotions and feelings. But it's not just that, is it? So he prays for them, that they may abound more and more in knowledge and depth and insight, that they might know what it is to live as God wants them to live. But they might discern what's best and work that out and live that out and produce these fruits of righteousness in their characters, in their attitudes, in their actions and bring praise and honour to God. Saints in Christ Jesus, partners in the gospel, sharers in God's grace, all because of God's love for them and for us.